Nice hair. Did you get a manicure? Yeah, because oh. I'm trying to grow out my nubbins. Oh, good. What one week without biting? But I also have a manicure, and I've just like torn it apart. <laughs> <laughs> you were just bragging a few weeks ago about how long your nails. Yeah, were. and then I came back and got <laughs> nervous and ate them. <laughs> Really annoying. We're never. Ga- Sometimes I was like, "This is the year I'm gonna stop biting my nails." But it's like an addict. Like there was a period of time where I didn't bite my nails for like maybe as much as like two and a half years. That's crazy. I don't. I don't give myself any goals, so I don't. Know. <laughs> it. I mean, it wasn't a goal. I just like stopped doing it. I was like, I am a person that doesn't bite their nails anymore. And then I think I moved to New York, and yeah, I immediately <laughs> ate them upon landing. <laughs> it's New York is the devil city. Yeah, made me munch on my own body. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm going back to Crimea. Back to Crimea. Do you want to say that before you even go there? I don't care. I realized. Okay. You should, should um should I try to record some stuff there. I know. I'm going to bring Zoom, but I don't want to have, like, I'm not, uh, I don't want to have pressure. But okay, we'll just bring Zoom in the lab. I shall. This shit feels like I won't ever make it home. Traffic's backed up, I got to get off of this road. From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn. Liar. We just we just lie all this all the time, yeah. No, I'm we on don't. the West Coast for the foreseeable future. So Okay, that sounded a lot more permanent than No. The next month or so. Yeah, and then she's gonna be in her giant mansion on the lake in Massachusetts. <laughs> <It's not. laughs> yup. So you don't have a ticket back? No, but I'm gonna go back like the first week of July sometime. Okay. Uh this is she's in Russia. I'm Olivia. And I'm Smith. Smithala. Smithala. <laughs> Her full name is Smithala. <laughs> All right, let's jump right into the sucker. Okay. Humper and Dumper. Did I teach you? Yeah, I taught you that. She yeah. loves it. She loves it, I folks. Love it. She does it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to start doing it just so I can use that phrase. All right. So on Sunday, uh, I went with Poli and Nastya to see an what's called an artistic evening in Russian. <laughs> with there's not really a translation for that. Is that's there? like a it's a, probably a poor translation as all my translations are because they're like really literal and I like it. But night party, like I think is the word. But we don't even have like that concept as a thing. I feel like. Well, yeah, I don't think you do. Actually, but you people. But I think it's more of like, I feel like it's more what we would call like a talk. Okay. Which is really general. But what's nice yeah. about artistic evening is that it's specifically like the person talking is an artist. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So who know? I don't even like know exactly what to expect, but it's with, drum roll please. Thank you. Yuri Norstein. Norstein. Um, do you remember who that is, Smithy? Dojek. <laughs> Where have you been? Did you bring the jam? Where have you been? 
Where have you been? Exactly. So, um, oh, Yuri Borisovich Narsin is is a animation master. He's probably best known. He's definitely best known for being the creator of Hedgehog in the Fog, Jozik v Tumania, as well as Tale of Tales. He's also very famous for that. Skazka Skazik in Russian. Yeah, and go back and listen to our Soviet Multiki episode if you want to learn a thing about Soviet cartoons. Yeah, he's one of the guys, one of the, yep, guys, mostly. Um, <laughs> one of the fellas. In that crew of uh, Soviet animation masters, people. Um, so he's now in his late 70s, and he was born in 1941 during the war in evacuation in the Penza Oblast, which is like southeast of Moscow. But mostly he grew up in this neighborhood called, this neighborhood of Moscow called Marina Rosha, which is, well, it's a neighborhood of Moscow, but I think at the time it was like, until like the 60s, it was more sort of rural, like in a, more of a suburb of Moscow, I think. Okay. Um, and probably had a lot of like uh, houses that we would consider to be Dacha-like. You, country you looked this up or or he talked about it well i looked up uh that history that i just said like until the 60s but he talked about spending his childhood there i'll get to that in a second okay and he references like wooden houses Mm. um he spent his whole childhood in there until his mid-20s basically and okay so he so on sunday he's he's this older guy on the stage by himself um and he spoke for two hours. <laughs> wow. Yeah. With, with, with AIDS? Not, I don't mean like people AIDS, like with visual representations? Or he was just like lecturing for two no, hours? No, yeah. So, so it was both uh, clips from his animations. Okay. Which was cool. Um, and a talk. It was, I mean, it was a lot of talk. And it was a kind of biography, but the structure was interesting. It wasn't exactly linear. Um, but the overall, I would say it was a biography mixed in with these clips of his films okay. and some tangents and some comments. Like at one point he like commented to someone in the audience who was there, like some famous um, director or sonographer or something and told a little anecdote about her. And, you know, he, he would he would go on tangents. But yeah, it was two hours. And he's still like, I mean, he's in his 70s. He's like still fully with it. Right? Yeah, he's fully with it. Um, and so, but it was like a very engaging two hours. So about halfway into the talk, he starts telling us about his childhood growing up in an, a communal apartment in that mm. neighborhood. He says, I was lucky in life that I lived almost my whole life until I was 24 years old in Marina Rocha, except for the evacuation. It was the usual dramatic story of the country, and I lived there like the majority of Soviet humanity in a communal apartment. It was a classic communal apartment. He says, he's like, it was a classic communal apartment. You already know what it's like. Most of you already know what it's like, and Vysotsky already described it. Um, and I should say, if I hadn't had that life in that communal apartment, my life would be completely different. I can't say if it would be better or worse, but just very different, and probably worse. (laughs) 
So he describes these, he goes on to describe these intimate scenes with his family in that room in a communal apartment. And, you know, like times that they spend all there together, there are four of them, um, doing their own thing in the room, his mom maybe mending something, his dad reading the newspaper, his brother practicing, like, practicing the violin. And then at one point he looked up at the audience after describing that sort of domestic moment and he said something like, is that not heaven? <laughs> he goes and describes a scene in the communal apartment. The four of us, dad, mom, and my brother and I, lived in the 13-meter room in a big communal apartment. But I wouldn't want to change that for anything. It's my childhood, and it was the most comfortable. Imagine a room in the middle of which mom is throwing a big tablecloth on the table. It rolls and fills up with air and slowly falls in waves, calms down, and takes on the form of the table. So he was actually reading something, I think, from a talk he gave in Prague, reading his own text about that moment. Okay. And then he interrupts himself and he goes, you know what I should say? I always prepared for that moment when mom would put the tablecloth on the table. And then he goes on to explain in even more detail than that first description, like every aspect of that ritual, how she would take the, push the crumbs off the table, remembering how her hands looked taking the corners of the tablecloth in a particular way and, like, billowing it up to put it down. It's nice that, like, his, what you would think of as, like, attention to detail detail in some sort of, like, visual or media art translates to the way that he gives talks. Yeah, and his writing, so the parts that he, his talks were really beautiful and his writing when he read himself, like, his own writing was also really yeah. beautiful. And he even said, like, he said something like, and people would say, like, oh, that must have been the moment, like, watching that tablecloth roll up and fall. That must have been the moment when you realized you were an animator. And he's like, no, I was just a very observant person. <laughs> I was a child. Yeah. And as I said, throughout his talk, he was showing us these clips of his work projected on a huge screen behind him. And, but in, okay, so this was, I think, a symptom of his age, or just a fact of his age, is that he didn't have, like, a clicker or a computer where he was controlling what was shown. Where was it coming from? He, well, instead, he had, he had a list on a piece of paper. He had a bunch of papers, and the list, okay. clearly, it was a list where, like, I, you know, he would check it. So it was with written, the name of the film, and then, like, the timestamp. Uh -huh. And he had Nikolai. So that was him searching for a clip from The Fox and the Hare, which is the first full piece that Narstein directed. And you can hear him say, like, Nikolai, please, play this one. <laughs> Okay. 
part Nikolai was just you know silently fulfilling his requests but sometimes things didn't go so smoothly and Nikolai couldn't always find exactly what he was looking for (laughs) (laughs) what does he say so Narsin goes Nikolai please show the cat and then there's like a long (laughs) And then Narstein is saying something like, it's over near this other thing, and like explains sort of some organization that maybe exists in some file system. And then another long pause, because Nikola- we haven't heard anything from Nikolai at this point. Yeah, you haven't heard his voice. He's a, yeah, he's like a voiceless servant that fulfills the <laughs> commands. Can you see him, or he's like in a booth somewhere? No, he's in a booth somewhere. Because he, you're in like a nice theater. Honestly, it was more like an auditorium. It had a stage. And that big okay. projector screen, it was a massive screen, but there were chairs set up. There weren't like, the- there wasn't theater seating okay. actually, but it, it was, it was chairs set up, but everything was assigned like a theater with like numbers. Okay. Okay. Um, so more like silence and then just a second. <laughs> and then they go on to be like. It's funny because, like, especially in the recording, like Nikolai's voice is like more present and booming than Norshi. Yeah, so it's like like, (laughs) this god figure. Just a second. (laughs) I saw him after. He's like a cute young man, actually. But um, oh, and I want to talk a little bit about Narstein's technique, which he talked about himself during during this talk, and I also read some on Wikipedia and can now verify what I read. Uh, and we've talked about it before. He, so he uses the technique of multiple planes of glass mm-hmm. that give his animation a kind of three-dimensional look. I mean, especially if we talk about the m- most famous ones we all know, like uh, Hedgehog in the Fog and Tale of Tales. Mm-hmm. And how that works is the camera is placed on top. I'm not sure I understood this fully. Maybe you did, but I, I like to understand it better now. The camera is placed on top looking down. Yeah. Um, at a, uh, well, I guess you explained it, yeah, a, ser- a series of panes of glass that go about a meter deep with one every 25 to 30 centimeters. And the individual glass panes can move and they can right. also move, they can move horizontally and vertically away from the camera. So the character, which is drawn to the glass. Closer or further on. away. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and he actually showed us some sketches. And he paints with watercolors on the, on the glass or what is he using? I don't. Mm, no you know i think it's literally like it's like they're physical but they're made of different parts so for example he was showing us this one part he was showing us do you remember in hedgehog in the fog when the snail like slides away it's a very small part Mm, no yojik lifts up a leaf and a little snail like goes sort of back into the distance okay he showed us like for that particular part that little snail like he, it's almost like he makes like a puppet. It's a flat it's puppet. Pa- it's paper or it's m- or it, cloth. It looks like laminated. It looks like a drawing with like that's been like laminated and has different parts. So like the shell is separate okay. and the body is separate so that they can like move in a more natural way. Okay. And he specifically did those kinds of jointed parts so that he could get like a smooth movement like a snail. But I'm not sure all of the characters are like that because that doesn't... 
I'm still unclear on that. But at least the filming part, he showed us these he showed us these sketches from a book, like it was projected on the screen, from a book that was written, I guess, about him or maybe only about Hedgehog and the Fog, but I think it was about him overall in Japan, like published in Japanese. Mm. Apparently he's very big in Japan and oh, interesting. has won awards there and stuff. Did he explain why? Does he have like is there a concrete reason like they really promoted it over there or it's just a fluke? I don't know if it's a fluke. I just think his style is really appealing and like to the Asians, Japanese people and like that. I don't know if it's not Miyazaki. Maybe it is. But I remember reading that a, a Japanese animator mentioned him when he got his own award as like an influence. Mm. But in any case, there's this book. I don't know how important the book is to like all Japanese people, but it happens to be in Japanese and it shows sketches of him and who I, and his camera operator, who he worked with, I think it's Alexander Zhukovsky. Um, And it's like, so it's not a picture of them, but it looks like a picture of them. And it's with their setup and they have basically like a, a mini scaffolding, like a wooden square scaffolding and they Mm -hmm. mount the camera on it. And then inside the middle of the scaffold is the panes of glass and they're just like pointing the camera down. Um, yeah. he's, he was several times during the talk pretty critical of computer animation and he was like mm-hmm. you just can't like people think it's so freeing and you have so much freedom but actually this sort of old fashioned thing that we were doing ended up being the, like making the most interesting animations so is it that like he thinks computer animation is is bad in a sense because it lifts certain restrictions and like for puts the focus on making things look fully realistic like why does he think yeah. i mean by default i'm like on his side but i want to know honestly he's i didn't include this part uh unfortunately but so i don't know the clip as well but he when he talked about computers he said something about like there's like I think it's about less contact with the animator with like a human between the the being like the character and the and the animator and like okay. it doesn't have a soul oh whoa or something like that like it doesn't have connection to humanity right because like when he's when he's making something it's like it he's physically interacting with it i guess so but honestly that's sort of confusing because you know how like with animator with animations now they can put somebody in like a they can put a human actor in a suit and like film them doing things so it should be sort of like natural but there's something about like the drawing yeah. of the motion for him. i'm not sure maybe they still do that that was that thing was a big thing in like the 90s when they're making like the little mermaid but i don't know if like now they do that i don't yeah i don't know how like cgi stuff is made well but i agree with him it doesn't have any soul but i agree too art now doesn't have us and most like media it doesn't have a soul so. but it's interesting to think that it would have something to do with like this making of right it's like a lack of contact yeah yeah and he I mean, I, that's how I'm interpreting what I remember him saying. So, but actually, okay. So then there's also the thing we talked about when we did the episode animation, which is straight up just like attention to each piece and quantity. So Narsane, at the end of the day, he's 77 years old. He's been with Sayuz Film since this beginning of his career. And then actually, well, he was actually like kicked out or something in the 80s. But in any case, he's been working as an animator his whole adult life basically. Mm -hmm. 
and he's made he's directed 12 animated films 12 he's yeah. animated like he's participated in some form as an animator as like a what is that called maybe an art director maybe some kind of Producer. other thing in maybe like twice that number okay or more but straight up his so people consider films he's directed as like his films right and there's 12 i that's what i counted on wikipedia so that also just has a this is a, such a different relationship and we kind of talked about that i think we talked about that a lot in the animation episode different relationship to the work and it f- feels much more like an artist and uh less about selling advertisements just less about like getting as much yeah more effort less about just like getting yeah. as many of these different episodes out as much as like creating a, a whole he I mean he didn't create episodes he created like a movie um right. but short movies a lot of the times okay and i don't know if you know this about him that since 1981 he's been working on you do know this about him he's been working on his rendition his animated rendition of Gogol's story, The Overcoat. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I haven't read that story, but I did know that. It's definitely good to read. Okay. It's good to read, and I'm really looking forward to watching the, the animation when it's done. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. How old is it? How old does that make it? 30, almost 30. No, wait, no, 81. 40. Almost 40. I'm yeah, almost fun. 30. Smath. Oh no! Oh no! We're old. <laughs> he actually kind. Of, he doesn't talk apparently or allegedly. He doesn't comment on that movie that much. Uh, probably because it's been forty years and he's tired of commenting. On yeah. It. <laughs> Shut up. I think, as I understand it, that the making of that film has some, is connected to why he was, was kicked booted? out of yeah Sayu's mom's film. So he didn't. He didn't talk about it. No, he didn't talk about that. But he did say something along the lines of like. Something went wrong there. <laughs> like they were, like they thought he was lollygagging too much or that they didn't like the content of it? I don't know. I don't know. But I, I would imagine lollygagging. Seems like. <laughs> Dilly dally. He talked a lot about, first of all, he calls the work multiplicatia. So it's like the full word for multiki, which is what we translate as cartoons. But multiplicatia, multiplicatia is like, multiplication and it's sort of like a more oh it sounds to me more like formal and technical than like animatsu which is like the russian version of animation mm. he did these directed these 12 movies he could spend quite a lot of time on each one yeah the mystery we don't know why like people were given so much sort of like freedom in that sense but clearly like the emphasis wasn't on quantity and i think he just in terms of like his sort of commercial relationship to commercial work, it's like very minimal. He basically did, I think, one or two maybe ads that he got paid money mm. for throughout his okay. whole career. He showed us okay. one of them. It's they're amazing. They're these '90s ads for this brand called Russian Sugar, and <laughs> it's just like their their logo is a lion, and but it's like a cool, I don't know how to describe it, like sort of ancient looking lion standing up. Mm. And he made that lion into a character and it just like crunches these like sugar cubes in different scenes. It's just like crunch, 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 crunch. (laughs) I can picture that. It's it's really cute. Um, And he made a series of ads for them because he was like, we really needed the money 
Like his studio needed it or his family needed no, it? No, him and his wife and his family. Okay. He has two kids, I think, and a bunch of grandkids. But he indicated that he definitely doesn't do this for the money. Um, and okay. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But yeah, at that time he was like, you know, it was like the, it was the late nineties and the, whatever you call it, some kind of economic downturn. And we just like made enough to be able to survive because like someone offered mm. me this work and I said, okay, but basically he like doesn't do that on principle. But yeah, about his films, he did tell us that when people, he said recently someone asked him, what's the most important film for you? And he said, very Russian of him to say, like, of course, everyone should know. Of course, it's the tale of tales. Of course. <laughs> He's like, you know, Yozhik, I, I love Yozhik, but it's not, it's like, the tale of tales is really where Tale of at. tales came first? No, it's after. So Yozhik Tumanya came out in 75, and tale of tales came out in 79. Okay. And you remember the, the movie? No, I didn't watch it. Oh, you didn't watch it at all? After I, I recommended so, it no. with such a gusto? <laughs> I don't think I watched it. Oh, my God. Well, I highly recommend it. It's, so he showed some clips from it, and I, again, had this feeling that I had when I watched it with Polly, which is just like, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's ups- sort of upsetting and sort of comforting at the same time. Um, mm. It's a movie that I would say, so it's longer than Yoshik. I think it's like 25 minutes or maybe almost 30 minutes, and... Um, it's a kind of childhood memory mixed with dream scenes, has sur- very surreal aspects and a lot of haunting imagery of like abandoned houses, um, some war scenery. And there's this like, when I say childish, there's also that element of surreal scale. Like in the beginning, there are these like giant, mm-hmm. or not the beginning, at some point, there are these like giant apples falling in the snow and they're huge. And the main character is this little wolf. It's like really cute. Aww. And the film has been referenced and is referenced as autobiogra- autobiographical. Okay. I didn't hear Narstein use that word in particular, but he openly refers to his memory in terms of this film. So Mm-mm. it's connected to his memory. So when he said like what it consists of, he's like what this movie consists of, he talks about these moments like these sort of slow moments that he remembers from uh, from being a kid when you can like sit and watch some process happening or some image or some texture where you're just basically nothing is happening but you're looking at it and for you something is happening. Mm-hmm. And one of the examples he gave was of plaster falling. <laughs> He says, we had a house, as usual, a two-story house. We had two houses, actually, one wooden, like in a tale of, in tale of Tales, and the second, it was also wooden, but was plaster, and the plaster was falling off. It was falling off, you know, in these continents. But I remember with what enjoyment, what pleasure, I stood near the wall and looked at the plaster falling off. There was life. It was a colossal aesthetic enjoyment. I remember how our neighbors came up to me and said, what are you doing? What are you looking at? And they're thinking, this kid seems okay, but there's something off about him. Because what's there to look at? But then I understood why I was looking. Later I saw the paintings of Paul Klee and I understood where they came from. 
where that precious dramaturgical texture is from. I'm actually not so I'm not sure if it's Paul Klee or what painter, but he said Paul Klee. <laughs> when I tried to look at it, I found like in Russian like the two e's at the end of Klee could be pronounced eh eh, so it like makes sense, but I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. Are you seeing? Does Paul Klee look textury? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I think we've got the right yeah. one, folks. Maybe our listeners will correct us with gusto. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I love that word. Today. Gusto. Um, also, that's not how I would pronounce it. I can't tell if you're just pronouncing it like that for fun. I am. It's gusto. Okay. okay. It's I'm, sure. I'm making a joke. Just making sure we're not having a Mongol yolk situation. I thought we went over this. Mongol yolk <laughs> was also somewhat on purpose. I know. But also not. Because when I say Mongol, my mouth wants to say yolk. My mouth wants it, and I will not disobey my mouth. I shan't, and I never do. So in terms of him talking about his memory, there were also... Well, he told us all of these like very particular personal memories from both his childhood and adulthood, which also are like his memories of the Soviet Union. And at least I remember two particular times he made this point of connecting individual memories, moments in life, to what he kept referring to as the larger dramas of Soviet history. And he did okay. this, for example, when he first mentioned his, his Jewishness or his family's Jewishness. He says, to live was dramatic. It won't be news for anyone here because a lot of people live through these dramas. But in 52, my dad was let go from work. He refused, as they say, to deliver them reports. Why did they point the finger at him? Well, because he was a Jew. What do you think? This was the time of the doctor's plot, so he was fired. He had no rights to work in Moscow. Wait, what is the doctor's plot? I knew you were going to ask that. Um, and I have prepared an answer for you, madame. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Well, you, wait, so you, you haven't heard of this at all? No. So, I don't know why it's called... It's not really translated right. It's, in Russian, it's like Zilla which is case, like doctors, like, like a court okay. case. But it was an incident which, it was right after the war in the early 50s, 52, 53, right before Stalin perished, kicked the bucket, bucket, <laughs> fell over. Um, there was this wave of anti-Semitism that, as far as I know, was like, headed, spearheaded by Stalin, um, or by the government, I mean, and probably particularly by Stalin. And it was that a group of predominantly Jewish doctors from Moscow were accused of, I mean, the same paranoia stuff, accused of aspiring to assassinate Soviet leaders. This is what Wikipedia Okay. I mean, I remember... Do- but doctors specifically. Yeah, and then it was accompanied by... It wasn't medical doctors, right? Or, or PhDs? No, I think it probably was medical doctors okay i see i see because they they could like pretend that they're helping you but give you poison i guess but like i didn't even think about the logic behind it um i just i remember when i when we learned about this 
just like this is the thing that people point to as one of the examples of like a particular moment of anti-Semitism in Soviet history. Mm. Um, And what happened was there was some after that, like doctors and other officials and sort of like this higher tier of rootless cosmopolitans of Mm -hmm. not rootless cosmopolitans, so like higher tier society. (laughs) RC for short. And probably not only higher were dismissed from their jobs if they were. Mm. So it happened with Jews and non-Jews, but there was sort of like a wave of anti-Semitism in the media, and there was like a reverberation. Um, and then, like after, pretty soon after the death of Stalin, there was things were reversed and stuff. But people were, I think, pe- people were killed. So. Okay. People were assassinated for that. So it sounds like what he's saying is that his dad got caught, was caught up in that wave, and as in like it's not that because he was Jewish exactly, it is, but it's like, oh, like you didn't do the right thing in terms of you know playing the bribe game or something, but we're gonna blame you because you're you're Jewish, right. um, as an excuse to fire him. So he and that's what's crazy about like the Soviet system is that he's not just fired from that job. He can't work in Moscow. <sighs> yeah, that's fucked up. And so he can't like lie on his resume. Right. So Narstein goes on to say, but my father was an immaculately decent man. So when some sort of acquaintances of him in another town heard that he needed work, they outside of Moscow, they said, like, you come work with us. Mm. Not sure what kind of work it was, but. And he was then, so he then traveled by train to that town. He said it was actually Petushki. Do you know that book, Moscow Petushki? No. It's a famous novel. I haven't read it, I am ashamed to say, but I have it. Um, And it's about this, like, I think it's about, like, I think it's narrated by, like, a drunkard or something on this train from Moscow Mm -hmm. to Petushki. Um, and he references the book, and I'm saying he's like, he travels to Petrushki, and he's like, when I read the book, I always thought of my dad, and it was a tough train ride, and it was cold, and it's part of why he ended up dying at 51, was going back and forth so much like that oh, in the winter. Yeah. That's good. It's kind of a Russian thing, though, to say that he died because he took a cold train, <laughs> like, on a regular basis. I know. Well, he was just like, trying to what say What does that life, mean? He means his life was like tough. Yeah. He means like he and got it killed sick. him. It was like a, a like a long train ride and probably long hours, and it was just a tough like lifestyle. And mm. so he died young. I think probably okay. from an illness. Yeah. Not because he like caught a cold on the train. <laughs> the window on the train was open. <laughs> Not funny. Um. And they said, when people ask me if I'm a believer, I say no. Do you know, it, I don't know if that's the tr- right way to translate it, but when you say in Russian something, are you a verushi, somebody who's like religious, but specifically, I think it usually means about orthodox, but like if you're religious, it's basically saying, yeah. it's literally saying, are you a believer? Yeah, that's a phrase in English. Okay. And... And I say no. And people say, how can that be? How, how can that be? Your films. <laughs> and I say, guys, look, for me, it's a completely different question. I remember my dad, and then I'm not sure exactly what is going on here, but basically tells the story of how his dad used to, um, another work that he used to do, which is, I think he's saying 
like make or clean or do something to a mattress and it doesn't really matter what he's doing. Okay. Just, just don't worry about it. So he's like doing some job and he's like, I remember my dad doing this job and he would always be the one who did it and it was like hard work and he always took it, you know, it didn't matter what the time of day or what time of year it was or something. And he's like, I remember my brother and I talked to some neighbors of ours two years after our father's death and people were like, people remembered him doing this work and we're like, we don't know what to do with the mattresses. And he was so good. We just like miss him so much. And there was no, he was so good at that. And he was, and Narsheen basically goes, that's like, to me, that's what belief is. It's, or that's the question uh, that's interesting to me. I don't really care so much about what's going on in the heavens or like above or outside of the world. I care about like in this real world, this fact that somebody could remember my father so clearly and have such a particular like memory of him um, that he left that mark, a mark mm. in the world. Like that's, that's what's important to me. Are people like the the line like, but how could that be? Your films like, are his, are they viewed as like particularly spiritual, or they have like mythic elements that people <laughs> interpret as like a indication of his Christian beliefs? Yeah, because I think so. Because like for example, Tale of Tales, and he actually mentioned this is like a smorgasbord of symbolism and references. Okay, but it references like. Greek mythology, it references like some Asian mythologies, it references religion. So it, it's it's very heavily symbolic, and I bet a lot of his movies are films. So mm -hmm. maybe that's what people meant. Oh, they just see okay. like their own religion. And yeah, and he had this kind of incredible way of, well, for example, this story, he had a way of presenting this fully formed theory or concept like of belief or what it means to be religious um, in a particular story of his family or like particular story of his childhood or a memory. Remember when I said like his, when he talked about his memories and family memories and childhood memories, he used this word drama, like the drama of the country or something or living mm -hmm. was dramatic. And I, I interpreted that word as euphemistic because he very much was not bashing Soviet history, the Soviet Union. He was, I mean, his own country and his own history. Like, he, he, he was not being critical of it. Um, and kind of, in fact, like, he was being the opposite. And at some point, at the end of the talk, there were a few audience questions. Most of them were sheet. But um, during his answer to one of them, he sort of revealed his anti-capitalist roots. The question was actually like some bullshit question that he managed to turn into an interesting answer, which was like, mm -hmm. when was the last time you felt at home in your work or something like that? And he was uh, like, at home? And they were like, <laughs> yes. And he was like, well. And then he was basically talking about this feeling of what he called like a, a brotherhood or a communality working with other animators, what he what presumably was in the Soviet era. But, like, I've kind of heard, or I was talking to Polly about this too, that, that like, the, the previously Soviet animators who continue to um, do the type of animation that he's doing, which is, like, 
artistic and I don't know, not mainstream and stuff. Um, they still are like a pretty tight group, the ones that are mm-hmm. still alive and are all very like anti-commercial. So they don't have a lot of money um, and they don't like focus on making money. Um, and he was talking about this sort of, yeah, this communality and he was like, in this system of capitalism, this relationship of like comradeship, I mean the comrade, the word comrade, is impossible and that, uh, I mean, he was just like extremely critical of it and was just like, and just, it's not acceptable to me. This system is not acceptable to me. Um, mm-hmm. And the main sort of issue is that at the end of the day, like the only relationships that are possible are like business relationships in that you're always competing and the goal of your working together, doing something together is always money. And that, you know, maybe with the exception of like your close friends and family, you can't have like a intimate relationship with a person who's, or not an intimate relationship with the person, but a person you work with basically. Right. Like a working relationship whose goal is not financial. Right. Which I think like do exist. And he's saying, and because they're financial, you can't have intimate relationships with people. Is that what he's saying? Well, it's not as intimate, but like he was just saying, I think what he was saying, yeah, was like you can't have the types of comrade work relationships that he experienced yeah. um, and that others experienced. But I mean, I think you can have that in a capitalist system. It's just very rare that people have those types of working relationships. And of course, he's not talking about like personal love relationships, but so he gives his sort of critical speech. Of course, everyone in the audience it's like, go fuck yourself. Yes. <laughs> they all work in like offices 40 hours a week. Yeah. And, and at first I also thought, kind of was like, well, this is probably hypocritical because like I thought his speech was hypocritical. That was my first reaction because I'm assuming Narstein is maybe not like rich, but has plenty of money. Just one of those like sort of comfortable academics or artist types that can like poke at the system from, from their, from above. From their yeah, plushy, cushy throne tower um but turns out so he had been referencing his sort of commercial work and how he did didn't do it and had referenced a couple of other times of like doing something in order to get a certain amount of money in order to like survive or live through a certain period but i was like oh that's all in the past like hedgehog in the fog hedgehog from hedgehog in the fog is printed on like a million billion things all over the world it's a famous thing like how is he not collecting on that, um, whatever you call mm-hmm. it, copyright stuff. I don't, I mean, I don't know, but according to uh, anecdotal evidence, um, Polly and I were talking about it after, and Nasu, and they were like, no, like he, it's sort of known that he doesn't have money, and oh, I guess he chooses not to collect on whatever you okay. call that. Um, right, because I guess if people are like printing shit, you have to like go and sue them. Like you can't just be like, Okay, hand it over. Right. It's not like money just like pops but into like, your bank account. But like, what about like the English version? You know how there's a book? Uh, vaguely know like, that. It's, th- there's like a picture book for kids that's Hedgehog in the Fog in English. And it's his images. And I just wonder like... Well, maybe he made some money for that. So maybe he, yeah. he has some money and that's what he lives on because he's been making the overcoat for 40 years and he maybe lives on some <laughs> of the like l- things that he chooses to. But Polly was basically like, he created this like child. These are like his children and he doesn't want to sell them. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, that's legit. It's also like now at this point, he's made the fact that he doesn't have any money and doesn't do commercial stuff like part of his public image. Yeah, though, all of those references were from like the 90s. And I really thought it was about like something that doesn't refer to now. But yeah, seems mm. like it's more part of his principles. And actually, this is really crazy, but Max got to like, Max went to, I think he does these sort of open housey things at a studio or at a, um, what is it called? Exhibit hall okay whatever the fuck that, what is that called ah where they do exhibits gallery a like studio okay, or gallery um in moscow An exhibit hall <laughs> regularly and max went to one and then people were like talking after and the and the last three people who stayed and were like talking to him for the longest he was like let's just go have tea at my house and they like oh. went to his apartment and wait ma- so max went yeah and he's oh my god yeah. what the fuck <laughs> of course he did i'm like not surprised at all um (sighs) and he said it was very humble it like almost looked like a communal apartment but it's probably like a one bedroom or something but yeah very humble apartment um i can just yeah i can imagine it so i had tea but basically yeah he doesn't he doesn't try to sell his children children is what how polio put it which i think is yeah it's very apt so, and as you might expect, it's hard to, It's hard for me to imagine any artistic evening, um, actually really any evening talk in Russia, especially a two-hour-long one, to go by without some recitation of a poem. <laughs> and, and good old Yuri did not disappoint. He also is an avid lover of poetry and maybe writer because he's a really good writer. So he recited, he recited some Brodsky at some point, and then uh, towards the end, he recited an excerpt. Well, actually, he sort of read, and it was partly memorized. He had the text, but he was like also just saying it from memory and like looking up a lot mm. from Pushkin, from Pushkin's The Bronze Horseman. <laughs> Support first. All right. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash she's in Russia. Um, as always, you get some goodies, stickers, magnets, socks, etc., and other tidbits that we choose to share on there if that ever happens. Um, subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter at she's in Russia.com. Follow us on Twitter and Telegram at she's in Russia. And we will see you next week. Пока, пока. Мгновенно к небу возгоря лицо тихонько обращалось, и он по площади пустой бежит и слышит за собой тяжелый звон, как будто громко гадание, тяжелый звон, как скакание, я зовем его ролик.